Hey everyone, welcome to Stories from the Influencer Economy. This is Ryan Williams. So excited that you're here for this episode. It is number 40, and it's my one-year anniversary. This podcast is celebrating its birthday, kicked off exactly one year ago this week. Could not be more than thrilled to post my first episode again. I'm republishing my interview with Bernie Burns back from last year because it was epic. A really fantastic interview, if I do say so myself. And I'm saying so because he gave me some awesome answers. And I've grown so much as an interviewer, as a podcaster, and really as a business person since this conversation. So it's a monumental moment for me in my career because I've been wanting to podcast for so many years now. I'm doing the podcast for people to learn, for myself to learn, and for creators and entrepreneurs to come on and tell me about how amazing they are in launching media brands and ideas in this century. And it's an archive, hopefully a, a historical artifact that people can reflect on is these were the transformational brands and people and ideas that actually changed the world. So I'm so proud that I've reached this milestone. I'm celebrating with you all this episode, reposting my very first interview, which was with Bernie Burns. He is the founder and chief creative officer of Rooster Teeth, which is one of the most globally game-changing video companies ever. And I'll let his story speak for himself when he actually is on the show. So wanted to you know, own this moment and celebrate the anniversary of the podcast, reflecting on things that I've learned and what I've really accomplished in the last year. I'm not a name dropper by any stretch of the imagination. I'm self-conscious very much about how I present myself to people because I, I don't like everyone that's trying to hustle right now and tell you how hard they work or who they know. And in any instance here, I just wanted to own this part of the conversation because I make the show for people to learn and, and listen and for myself as well. So I've had three Emmy-nominated online video creators this year. Could not even imagine two of them actually won Emmys. Jamie Wilkinson won an Emmy. Shira Lazar was nominated for an Emmy. And Bernie Sue won an Emmy. So that alone is a great achievement. I'm so thrilled that they came on the show. And I talked to two filmmakers that have raised over $5 million in crowdfunding for their movies. And that was Freddie Wong, who's raised $2 million for Video Game High School. And Bernie Burns, this guest, who raised $2.5 million for Laser Team this past year. That's an incredible amount of money coming from the community, bottom-up success stories with those guys. And so proud to have had them on the show. I have four New York Times best-selling authors on the show. Jonah Carey, Adam Grant, Willie Geist, and Alan Sepinwall, who had a top 10 New York Times book of the year. So that alone is such a major accomplishment for me as a professional. Again, I don't normally do this, but I think it's it's worth it to, to talk about the guests because I've learned ridiculous amounts of information from them. And I've also had five YouTube creators who have over 20 million YouTube subscribers between them all, from Freddie to Bernie to Shira Lazar of What's Trending to Taryn Southern, the actress-entrepreneur, to Flula, the funny, hilarious German DJ. Flula has an agent now since the podcast. That's how much of an impact he's had on on the entertainment world where he actually needs to, he's going to be a movie star and it's it's so fun to watch him grow. I also have a host of a 30,000 person gaming conference, which is RTX. Also uh, from the Rooster Teeth family, which was 
Barbara Dunkelman. I've had the top business podcaster who came on the show, Jordan Harbinger of Art of Charm, the top sports podcaster for college football and content around the college category, Ty Hillenbrandt. I had him on twice from the Solid Verbal, and some amazing marketing podcasters that have reached epic proportions with their shows that are people that inspire me to keep going. And these achievements are not lost in this podcast or in context of my book that I'm currently writing and in the stage of going to speak with agents. I'll just, full disclosure, I'm working with an editing company to help make this proposal kick ass. And I think there's a big opportunity here for the book to hopefully transcend the medium of writing into the podcast and online courses and speaking opportunities and creating a brand that lives forever. And that's what the beauty of the internet is, is that we can create content that is an archive and, and historically an artifact. And it's almost like you have museums now that are online libraries of people's content and stories. So it's been an amazing journey and I'm so happy to have reached this milestone. I've talked to some awesome people. And I look forward to growing this podcast even further in the next year and posting more than 40 episodes in the next year and publishing the book and growing my business. So thank you, everyone, who has made this special and helped create an opportunity for me to grow this. And and uh, there's so many to name, so I, I can't just start by listing people because the people that have touched the show have been many. So anyway... Uh, have a daughter now. She's Julia. She's 16 months. She's one of the reasons why I started the podcast is, and uh, wanted to make sure that she knew I was doing the right by the right way to start a business, and that's to create content and build a brand and, and an idea. So Julia is probably the one person I would like to thank. And without her, I wouldn't be doing this. She helped reframe a lot of my business thinking and how I can help people and how people can, in the long term, help me grow out my ideas. So I always want to hear from listeners. I love conversation conversations hit me up ryan at influencereconomy.com and i have a free podcast guidebook that i've been giving out and getting the word of how great podcasts are for businesses and ideas and companies so email me whenever you want and have a question about podcasting if you're on itunes please subscribe would love to get you involved and the long run it really helps me get visibility within itunes and leave a review as well that helps tremendous amounts and finally, all the archives, all these guests I've talked about, um, influencereconomy.com. I'm actually really excited because Bernie's on this episode from the first time I, I talked to him. And Adam Kovic and Bruce Green, who actually had on as episode number seven, are now working for Bernie and Rooster Teeth. So it's all coming full circle. And I love seeing all the collaboration going on in YouTube and the different environments. So... If you want to hear episode seven with Adam Kovic and Bruce Green, it's the prequel to actually them working for Rooster Teeth right now. Their company, uh, Rooster Teeth, is still you know one of the biggest media brands out there. Over 10 million YouTube subscribers. They have over 3 billion video views to serve over time. And they've got this epic series, Red versus Blue, that you know Bernie gets into for how he launched his idea back in the 90s. So uh, congratulations to Adam and Bruce. Go back to that episode number seven if you want to hear their story. Barbara Dunkelman, who also works at Rooster Teeth. She's episode 13, I believe. We talk about RTX. And finally, Bernie, who's the the godfather of Rooster Teeth and really the online video space. So I learned a lot. Hope you do too. Uh, thanks again for joining me on this amazing 40-episode journey. Can't wait for 
what's going on in the future. And big shout out to Julia Williams, who's obviously uh, my daughter. So anyway, enough about me. Without further ado, Bernie Burns. Here we are uh, at the YouTube Space LA. Welcome to the podcast, Bernie Burns. How's it going? Thank you. Hello. Good to be here. Uh, we are excited to have him here. There's a YouTube event going on, and Bernie's in town from Austin, so welcome to L.A. Yeah, we're doing the uh, Tubathon event, uh, so we're recording this in mid-December, where Mid- we're, we're trying to raise money for homeless kids in L.A. In L.A., nice. Yeah. And how is it being away from Austin? I'm, I'm used to the trip from L.A. in Austin, yeah. So it's a two-and-a-half-hour flight, uh, and I make it probably about once every two weeks, if not once a week. Oh, know, really? Sometimes. Yeah, I'm out here a lot. You have oh, cool. to be. It wasn't always that way. I've been doing this for about 11 years, but in the last two or three years, I mean, we're standing in a studio that was built by YouTube. Right. I mean, this thing didn't exist a year and a half ago, so there's a lot going on right now. And, you know, I wish it wasn't centered in L.A. and New York and London and Tokyo, just like, you know, every other major form of production, but, you know, people go where they can get talent, so. Right. So what do you think now when you come to YouTube and there's Toby Turner and Freddie Wong and... There are now personalities. When I think you guys great. were building all that out on your own, not really knowing what the end game was. I think it's great. I especially admire Freddie, uh, because you know, Freddie makes some of the you know, highest production value narrative content that's out there. And uh, really big admirer of his. Um, you know, a lot of YouTube is um, it's changing a little bit, but a lot of it's based in personality driven content. Right. Which is not necessarily my thing, probably based on the fact that when I started doing this stuff I was twenty eight, uh, you know, and so after doing eleven years I'm at forty. And, uh, you know, that's personality-driven stuff. It usually tends to be a lot younger. Right. Um, I lean more towards the narrative style content. What is your personality? What's that? What is your personality then? Oh, are, are, are you yourself? <laughs> a tired version of yourself? Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, for a long time, I guess my personality originally was the boss. You know what I mean? And, yeah. And just, like, having a fun culture of, like, you know, threatening to fire people and that kind of stuff. You know? I mean, it's, it, that's the stuff that faces outward. You know, right. the personality of the company, which is something that we put out there a lot. You know, we have podcasts. Um, we have a lot of Let's Play videos that are really popular. Yeah, can you explain your network to people that maybe have seen it, but they don't grasp the full concept of what you all do? Sure. So uh, Red vs. Blue uh, was the first big hit that we had. It was like the whole company was basically one show when we started, um, which I think is pretty typical, you know? Yeah. Um, and so we started April 1st of 2003, and Red vs. Blue is a show that is machinima with a little m. It's the style of filmmaking called machinima. Uh, a lot of people might know the big brand name Machinima that has kind of taken over the whole yes. genre. Uh, but Red vs. Blue is the first uh, and biggest example of the Machinima art form, which was to take video games and use them to make narrative content. It's essentially like digital puppeteering, where we would have lines and we would use the characters in Halo's, Halo to act out those lines. Put up the first video, got about 3,000 views. Uh, put up the next video after the first one had been linked a couple different places. We got 250,000 views. We got 500,000 the next week, and we were at a million a, a week by the end of the month. Crazy. It was all on your own website. Super fast, yeah, yeah. On, on redversusblue.com at the oh, time. Wow. Rooster Teeth didn't even really exist then. And uh, then started Rooster Teeth, and uh, we did a lot of things back in those days because I thought, this is not going to last, you know? I mean, people will get tired of the show in four or five months. If we're lucky, we'll get four or five months. Uh, so we built Rooster Teeth as a site, uh, built a social community site uh, as well, because Facebook really wasn't huge back then, but MySpace was around. And um, that was all in an effort to try to keep people in place, because I thought once people get tired of this, we're going to need some time to develop something new and have something to hold people in place while we work on this new thing and then be able to introduce it to them and hopefully just not lose these people to the ether of the internet. 
Um, and so you want to keep them on your site, get them to log in, mm -hmm. communicate because you built community really around the content. Yes. So now, like, I think your one of your biggest strengths is that you have community built in to your shows, so you know right away if they're going to like it or not. But I feel like you guys have set yourself up to have a subscriber. I think you've one and a half million visitors on your website. That yeah, we have one point six million registered members on our site. You know, and just YouTube is as YouTube has grown and become a cultural phenomenon. I mean, we have over ten million subscribers on our different channels on YouTube, um, and about th we're getting getting close to three billion views total aggregate views on YouTube. So it's cra it's it's crazy. And how how, do you, how does it affect the content you make based on your community that already is rabidly in love with you? Well, you know what's weird is that uh, we treat YouTube like syndication. Most people don't do that. We run things first on our website. We let them run there for a few weeks. Uh, in the case of Red vs. Blue, it runs a year, uh, a window, before it goes to YouTube. When you start producing it? No, we, we, we run it for, like, say, if Season 8 runs in the summer of 2011, right. it doesn't appear until 2012 on YouTube. Oh, you right. You can't see it until, until that. We go through home video, we go through, like, Amazon, iTunes, all that, and then we go to YouTube. It's oh, really? Like the last step of like windows of distribution. Mm-hmm. And it's a different for different shows. Uh, right. So over time, we've grown from Red vs. Blue. Uh, we were initially did a lot of machinima content, uh, where we did a lot of different shows and a lot of different video games. We used The Sims. Um, a shooter called Fear was one of our popular series. Um, we did a lot of television commercials uh, for video games. Right. Um, I saw the one that was from EA Sports with the guy from the Colts. Oh, gosh, and yeah. He's, he's every player. Yeah. And he thought it was too egomaniac. Well, that's because uh, there was a, a commercial that we did for the... Madden game of that year, and the big feature was gang tackling, where two players could tackle one player. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's one of those things you don't think about it when you're doing this, but everybody on the field of Madden is a parallel with a real person out there. Right. I mean, and so the guy that gets tackled in this commercial, he's a real dude. And he made a press conference saying, I didn't give permission for these guys to make me look basically right. like a bitch. You know? <laughs> and so he, so in order to kind of make it up to this poor guy, because we didn't select him either. But it was but like, so-and-so's passing it. to the, He's the receiver. Yeah. He's the defender. He's the kicker. And he was the whole game. So then we made that video to, like, apologize, made him look really good in this other oh, video okay. where he's, like, awesome. And he's, like, every position What on was the, the other video? The other video was showing him get gang-tackled. <laughs> and that was the actual one that uh -huh. was on TV. Oh, really? And okay. then at the press conference, somebody asked him, hey, what was, how do you feel about being tackled in the latest Madden oh. commercial? He goes, yeah. I, my mother called me and said, I thought you died. <laughs> like a scrum pile on? Yeah. And so... Uh, so you then leveraged... you. So I think for people that understand that Halo is the game you use for Red versus Blue. That's correct. And Bungie was, from what I understand, okay with you guys creating the content. Which well, was, we had this brilliant idea initially that we would fly under the radar. Like, because we knew it was kind of a weird... You know, people who... Copyrights are weird thing. A lot of people who... Uh, do stuff that's kind of uh, outside the rules of copyright. They use the word gray area a lot. It's just that's, you know, people know it's like they're using something that they're going to need permission to do it. They're not getting it. They know if they're doing that. Right. We knew we were in that space, but we didn't know how to do it. Yeah. So we thought maybe we could fly under the radar and maybe this thing will get popular enough. Well, that lasted about a week and a half. And, uh, and you know, it's one of those things, uh, honestly, if you look back at it those days, uh, we went in to talk to them and said, you know, here's what we want to do. Uh, more importantly, here's what we don't want to do. Right. And, you know, we got really lucky, really fortunate in that Microsoft, they, they looked at it. Um, this, you remember this before YouTube, there wasn't a lot of video online. They looked at it and they said, you know, okay, this is something that's different. We don't really get it, but we do know that people seem to really, really like this thing. Mm -hmm. um, and we are a company that values innovation. So let's put our money where our mouth is and let's say this is an innovative thing and we're going to try to support it. So in some ways, like for lack of a better word, you're pirating content in a way that made it, and I don't say that negatively, because I think a lot of companies in video, you take other content and it's part of the story. 
but then you turn that into like an advertisement for they could then hire you for. I think it's I, I think it's genius. I associate piracy with somebody like literally taking somebody else's work and just like reposting it. Like we weren't taking uh, we weren't making Halo available available to people to in it. lieu of Halo. Right. You know what I mean? Right. This was like something we were doing. It's kind of it was a fan film. Yeah, is what it was. Yeah, That's like what fan, we, fan fiction. We, yeah, we fell more under a fan film. I right. Was probably Red versus Blue. Honestly, if you look at it, is probably the most successful fan film of all time. Right. And uh, yeah, but I, I look at piracy more so as uh, maybe piracy is not the right word, but yeah. there's something about it that was genius. Where you're like, we're taking other people's game engine. You're telling a funny story within it. And then you're getting hired by that industry to yeah become an advertising partner. Here's the way that here's the way that uh, I tried to pitch it on like a high level philosophical level was that you know the the a video game is essentially a really advanced tool for doing real time rendering, and then the game is the layer they put on top of it, and that game is here's the rules of how you're gonna interact oh, right. with this world, and so we just didn't play that game. We made up a different game. So we're still playing with Halo. We're still playing with this world. We're just playing with it in the way that we wanted to, which we're filmmakers. We wanted to play with it by telling Absolutely. stories and doing fun stuff. And they, people seem to get that. Absolutely. Yeah, people seem to get that. That's cool. And how do you feel now when you look at gameplay like from Call of Duty and Minecraft, where just you know Justin TV became Twitch TV? Yeah. Like, it's an industry. Like, what propelled you to put Halo Machinima online? Well, I think that's what Machinima has become, is Machinima has now taking a video game and using it to tell stories. That was, people thought this was revolutionary. We got written up in, like, very, we got to play at the Lincoln Center, you know? I mean, it was, it, when we first started doing, doing it. Film festivals. And yeah, Sundance, like, as an independent filmmaker, I'd been turned down to go to Sundance, right. like, four times. Then all of a sudden, I get invited to come. Yeah, uh, I didn't guess. Yeah, I didn't, well, it was a weird experience. Through the internet. But unfortunately, I think, um, I should say unfortunately, because everyone values different things, but I think that machinima as an art form has, Evolved to be people using the game to play the game uh, and then have commentary over the top of it. So it's less become about narrative content, which I really like, and it's more so become about like personality driven content, right. which our company does do a lot of, you know. But myself personally, I still tend to focus on, on the narrative. I always want to tell stories, I always want to build characters. That's really important to me, um, you know, and so it's, uh, I, I think that. You know, there's still some room in the machinima genre for people to do some really cool stuff. Like Source Filmmaker is a great tool for Valve. Um, you know, a lot of video game companies are embracing, you know, the ability to make movies in the game. Like Halo added a theater mode. You know, there's uh, DVRs now in practically all the That's consoles. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. And you can capture footage from there. Yeah, it's natively built in. How did you... And So you were doing it a lot more, like, yourself. And now it's, it's available. The accessibility for these tools is... Everyone can create their own content and put it on YouTube. What did you think when something like Minecraft came from the internet? And it's if you search Google, YouTube for Minecraft videos, they tower over the amount of Call of Duty videos. Which, it's insane. What did you think about watching that happen and erupt from the video world as someone who's been a pioneer? In, in yeah, so uh, the story of Minecraft to me that's amazing is not only how big it is, but how long it's lasted. Because usually things that burn that bright burn pretty fast. Um, especially with, you know, a younger demographic. Yeah, so actually I executive produced a uh, documentary about Mojang, the story of Mojang. Uh, and that's when Minecraft was like in beta on a PC because I was playing it all the time with my kid and I loved it. That thing uh, completed and came out and I had kind of moved on myself from Minecraft before it came out on Xbox. And there was a whole nother phenomenon of that. It's like, that seems like it was three or four years ago. It, it is... the. the it's a culture. Minecraft is a culture. I don't, it just, it's, it's got hold of people. Right. I'll tell you a funny story. I, yeah. I knew a guy who uh, 
and uh, anecdotally, he told me the story of there was a, a group that was working on a Lego MMO, which it was called Lego Universe, and it did come out. But there were people who they saw, they were working on the team, they saw Minecraft, and they were showing it around the office, like, look at this Minecraft thing, at the, the Lego developer. There were people that quit. He said, people making the game. Like literally, they, they said, like, oh, it. they looked at this at Minecraft and they just quit and left. <laughs> you know, and that, that was the drive. Like it took the wind out of their sails. That development team was the Kickstarter project, the story of Mojang. Is that what you? Yeah, yeah, yeah the two player productions. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's really well told. Yeah, those guys are really good. They did the first season of the uh, Penny Arcade reality series too. How'd you get involved with that project? I did it through Kickstarter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, as far as getting games online now, like where do you see the industry going? Or as far as communications with the storytelling around games that you all are doing, and then you do live action content as well. Like, where do you see Rooster Teeth in a few years in this world? It's hard to say. The biggest, uh, if there's any secret to the success of Rooster Teeth, has been the fact that we've had to stay adaptive. Uh, like, when we first looked at YouTube, we were like, no. You know, before, this is before they were bought oh, by really? Google. We were like, nobody's gonna, who's gonna do this? Who's gonna come in here and watch this stuff? Um, we were helping a, a guy, um, a, a guy at the time, we were producing a cartoon with him. Um, and he was making the Ask a Ninja series, and he was exploding in the early days of YouTube, like before the before the partner program and all that. I still think they, still think they owe those guys a huge check. Uh, <laughs> but uh, they, uh, yeah, they showed he showed me YouTube. Kent Nichols, uh, he works at. Uh, then he went on to work on content partnerships at Blip, and now is at Maker with the acquisition by Blip by Maker. Um, yeah, he showed me YouTube. I remember he showed it to me, and he was always a guy who was always on the cutting edge, always looking at the next thing. But you know, YouTube, I looked at along with things that now don't exist, like Rever yep. and other video platforms. Right. To, to me, it just looked like anything else. And I Bio. thought, yeah, it's like, why, why put our content on somebody else's network? That's what I thought at the time. Uh, but then with, as everything exploded, and YouTube got to the point where it reached that brand status that so few things reach, where it has become a verb. It has come to mean video online. That's what people say. I'm going to YouTube this. Right, or yeah. a YouTuber. Yeah. It's like, it's it's beyond, you know, just a platform. So, so then you guys are just going to keep doing what you do, which is stay true to yourself. Like, you make content that you guys like, that you would, you would essentially pass to Gus, and he would crack up at. That's exactly right. Is that no, really the criteria that you have? That's it. As we tell people when they come to work for us, like, say, just make content that you would want to watch and you'd want your friends to watch. Right. And then we have enough faith that there's enough people out there like us that will always have an audience to show this to. have your similar sensibilities. Yeah. And one thing we, t- we talked about on the phone previously was how you, you've hired a lot of people that are part of your community. Yeah. That are fans or created content. It's or, the number one place we look whenever we're going to hire somebody new. Yeah. And so is there an application process or do you sort of people find a role and it comes up I'd like to say yes, but more so it's like if you're talking about um, for like an IT position, yes. Uh, for an on-camera talent position, not really. It's more so we try to go out there and identify people. Uh, Gavin is a great example of that. He's the guy who runs Slow Mo Guys. Right. And works for us in he's our here today, right? Yeah, he's here today. He's works in our enormously popular uh, Achievement Hunter series. And uh, Gavin is a guy that I've known since he was 15 years old, living in the UK. He just was making funny content for the website, making funny Photoshop images, and we just kept talking to him. And then he got involved with high-speed photography on an apprenticeship level in the UK. That career exploded, and we just That's always amazing. Yeah, always kept in contact. That's so cool. With him. And then RTX. Is your community event? Yeah, so that's the community event that we hold every year in Austin, uh, and uh, we just held the second one, and it was 
25,000 people came over the course That's of so cool. three days. Yeah. That's amazing. So it was pretty nuts. And it's all about your guys' community coming to meet you and interact and do panels. We are trying to get it beyond that. And we thought this year was going to be the year that we got beyond that because, you know, once you have that many people, you think, well, they're here for something besides just us. But even this year it was pretty solid of, you know, you know, we were trying to turn it, turn it into something more than what appears to be like a big fan meetup. It's not that. We want it to be. Yeah, it's like that structure. Yeah. We yeah. want it to be a big event in Texas where people can come and see new games and, and yeah, talk culture. The next one is coming up in July? Yeah, we haven't set the date yet, but we're, we're, we're looking at, you know, July is kind of tough in Texas. Uh, so we're looking at different um, possibilities. Cool. Yeah. All right. And then uh, one final question I have is two part is who are some of the favorite people on YouTube? You mentioned Freddie before that you, that you yeah. respect. And secondly is what would you say to someone aspiring like the – the 20 year old you, or when you were in film school, or you actually were in tech, IT school? I was a computer scientist. Computer science. At the University of Texas. So maybe not you, but someone yeah. who's an aspiring filmmaker or that has a YouTube channel that has no subscribers. Well, first of all, my favorite uh, and most influential artist online is actually not a YouTuber. Uh, it's the uh, brothers uh, Chap, Mike oh, yeah? and Matt Chapman. They made Homestar Runner. Oh, yeah. Homestar Runner to me was. Just a trippy website. It's just fantastic. <laughs> Great, yeah. like, uh, fun. Like, to me, it's like. Looney Tunes style, designed for kids, but so appealing to adults. Right. And that's such a hard thing to hit. Uh, and they did such a great job with it, with such like identifiable, cute characters. And uh, anyway, I was a big fan. And uh, and unfortunately, that site hasn't updated in a few years. But hold out hope that maybe they'll get back to it. But online, you know, Freddie Wong, Meyer Him, uh, Grace Helbig, just really funny. Hannah Hart, um, big fan of Live Prude Girls. I watch problem making. We make a lot of content. Part of the job. Yeah, it is. It really is. And I like this stuff. I really. It drives I really my wife crazy. Because I would come home from work and show her a dumb video of a goat sounding like a human. Yeah. And I was like, no, I watched that this like, morning. It's like part of my job. Yeah. I need to know this for work. Yeah. I uh, nominated for video of the year <laughs> a goat singing with Taylor Swift. Yeah. What, exactly. Uh, yeah. It was that one. So like that. And as far as advice goes, um, I will be perfectly honest. It's a little tough because the environment that exists today. Uh, did not exist when I started in 2003, but that's for better and for worse. Um, you know, there's a, you can have the ad truck show up at your door now when you get a big, you know, video uh, or video with a ton of views. You know, if you get a 10 million view video, which is really so hard, it's, it's close to impossible. Yeah. But if you were to do that, uh, then you would have people contacting you, figuring out a way to, to make that work for you. Right. Whether it's an MCN or a talent agency or just, you know, YouTube partner program. Uh, so I can't really I can't really give advice for how we started, but the the advice that always stands the test of time is uh, don't wait. That's the main thing I would say. Is just don't wait. Even if you're a young person, uh, and a lot of young people are interested in making content for YouTube, is that um, it can be hard to find people to work with. But no matter what you're doing, if you're working on something, even if you don't put it out, you're honing your craft, and that is time well spent. And if you're even let's say 14 years old, and you spend three years making stuff that nobody sees, you're still three years ahead of everybody right, else. Right, totally. Know? So just start immediately. Just start. And just don't be start. afraid if it's not perfect. And Robert Rodriguez had a great great quote. Uh, he said, you have about 40 bad movies in you, and the sooner you get them out, the better it'll be for everybody. Yeah, yeah. get them out of the way before you're famous. Yeah, exactly right. Okay, yeah. cool. Well, thank you for chatting with us on the podcast. My pleasure. You're one of the premier early guests, and we will be publishing this probably in January. Okay. And uh, what, what's your favorite barbecue place in it, Austin? Uh, it's actually just outside of Austin in Lockhart. It's uh, Kreutz's Market. Kreutz's Market? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Spelled K-R-E-U-Z. 
It's a German name. It looks like Cruises, but it's Cruises. Yeah. Better than Salt Lake and Rubies. Salt Lake, last time I was there was good, but Salt Lake's where a lot of people come from out of town. It's kind of it's overrated. It's a touristy trap, and yeah. it's also the airport. Listen to me, I'm talking like a local now. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. No, 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 no. yeah. No, but hey, listen, if you go to Austin, there's a chain that gets underrated in Austin. It's called Rudy's. It's yeah. always no, good. It's fa- phenomenal. It's always yeah, the good. Big, big glass cups. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, big cups are big huge cups. in Texas. Yeah. yeah, big everything. 40 ounce everything. Yeah, big, big belt buckles, big sticks. The, All right, the thank state you. of the oil drum. You're so, you're so great. Thanks. Appreciate your time. All right. I also wanted to uh, thank everyone for doing a lot of work to help me early behind the scenes, including my brother Michael, my wife Catherine, my daughter Julia, the support from people like Rachel Romero, Matt Perez, Ryan Stoner, Coleman Green. Aaron Dode. Uh, there's so many people out there I wanted to thank, and I really appreciate everything you've done for me. Also, I've had some awesome guests. I mean, how the hell I've landed all these people, it's awesome. And so between, I've had three people nominated for Emmys, two winners of Emmys, including the first YouTube channel, Bernie Sue, uh, the creator of Lizzie Bennet Diaries, to ever have won an Emmy. Jamie Wilkinson, who won an Emmy with Star Wars Uncut. Shira Lazar, who was nominated for an Emmy with What's Trending. Bernie Burns, who's raised $2.5 million in crowdfunding. I've had some awesome crowdfunding people like him, even before the campaign launched. But just to show you that this is, you know, something like Freddie Wong. I've had some awesome crowdfunding shows freddie wong's raised like uh, around freddie wong's raised i've had some awesome f- crowdfunding guests like freddie wong's raised over two million dollars to crowdfund he's over seven million youtube subscribers the combined youtube subscriber count of all my guests is over 20 million which is incredible i've had best-selling authors willie geist uh jonah carey they're new york times best-selling authors how i got them unbelievable who knows I've had number one sports podcaster, Ty Hillenbrandt. Uh, I mean, I'm just listening to these off the top of my head, so it's definitely, I'm in awe. And I think that for me in the future, I want to be the best-selling author, hopefully coming on someone's podcast. I want to love to be the number one business podcast talking to other people. I would love to public speak. I mean, I get so energized. One of the beautiful things about the podcast has been I'm able to take all my talents in business and and entertainment and marketing and and stylize it all together and build a platform off of that, which is incredible. So I've been able to take my stand-up comedy background, you know, which I my wife will tell you that I was a failed comic, which is why she didn't want to have me continue because we met at a comedy club when I was performing and she felt like uh, you know, I wasn't as funny as I could have been, which is true. Good point. But I, I can use my comedy background. I I've organizational theory major at college at Vanderbilt. I've built amazing relationships with people throughout the years, and I very rarely ask people for favors. I help people as much as possible, and I built a really good business career before the podcast. I couldn't have done the podcast unless I had that track record. So anyone launching a show, you need life experience to really have a podcast, I think. I think it's it's just integral that you've experienced failures, ups, downs, because you don't know how to answer questions for yourself about life if you haven't experienced it and you can't ask questions to people without that perspective. So 
anyway, it's it's been a really good run, and there's a lot of people to thank that I couldn't even mention, like Big Charm, uh, my dad, John B. Williams, my mom, Kathy Williams. You know, this is the end of the podcast, so if you're still sticking around, I'll mention you. The Duncan Brothers, uh, Mike and John, and uh, all, you know, the guests in general, like, I'll keep, I'll keep it short because I need to get this done with because you guys want to move on with your life, but... You know, Jeff Ulrich from Earwolf Media was a phenomenal guest. And getting to talk to Jonah Carey, who's, you know, this Grantland writer and someone I really look up to. And Willie Geist, who's an old college friend. And Troy Carter, who's one of the best, you know, entertainment entrepreneurs' minds out there. It was fascinating talking to him. And there's so many people out there that I love to talk to still. And there's so many people that I've already been lucky enough to talk to. Just a quick book update. I have my chapters outlined, 40 of them. I have my first chapter done. It's Freddie Wong. I'm going to publishers in the next few weeks before South by Southwest. I'll be talking to agents. So it's mid-February right now. By early March, I'll know where I stand in the world. And I'll have a book deal in hand before South by Southwest. That is the aim. That is the focus. Once the book deal happens, there's so many other opportunities I have creatively. I'm launching a new company, Influencer Model, I am doing business podcasting and helping companies, creators, entrepreneurs launch their own podcasts and navigate the the world of, of podcasting. And so my whole life has really drastically changed in this last year between the daughter, uh, Julia, my baby, and the podcast. And this business in general is completely different than it ever has been. And I've always been a believer that you have to put your money where your mouth is. And you can't be an entrepreneur in a media company environment at this point without being the creator. The days of guys in suits telling people how to work is over. You have to be like Bill Simmons or Chris Hartwick, Bernie Burns, where you are the creator who's also the editor-in-chief and the owner and the president and the founder. And I have you know, business background, so I'm lucky in that respect. But I think I had to create to build a new phase of my career. And I know I'm forgetting people to mention Adam Kovic, Bruce Green. They were awesome guests as well from Machinima. And they just got a hired by Bernie at Rooster Teeth. So he, they're working with Barbara and Bernie. It's These worlds are colliding. Michael Goldfein was just hired by Full Screen. So I think that everyone I'm interviewing is either approaching a level of success that's game-changing or they're already there. Flula has an agent now. You know, he's now working with UTA and booking himself in movies. Taryn Southern is super successful on YouTube. You know, she's an actress and multi-platform entrepreneur. Like, there's so many people out there doing well. And I think that the goal is really, can these podcasts be a time capsule to go back into this era that we're in where everything is brand new. And we, from there, can see how these successful creators actually produced great things for the world. And how could we see those transformational moments? So thanks again. Hunter Walk came on the podcast to talk about investing and, you know, the whole arena of this, Brendan Mulligan of Cluster came on as well. The whole arena of podcasting is is only in the first inning, maybe even the bottom half. But I can't wait to see what's next. And if I'm forgetting anyone, a friend like Big Charm or anyone else, tell me and I'll mention you in the next episode. But until the next time, thank you so much for a great year. Cannot wait for the next year.
Take care. Have a great night. Heading over to Duke Zebert's for some chicken in the pot.